Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wrap, brought to you by Michigan Medicine Headlines. I'm Dan Elman with the Department of Communication. And I'm your co-host with two first names, Hunter Mitchell. Today, we have an innovative show for you as we discuss the Frankel Innovation Initiative and the projects it is funding. Now, before we get into that, give yourself a chance to go back and get caught up on any episodes of The Wrap you may have missed, including last week's show on clinical research coordinators. You can find the shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast hosting platform. New episodes can also be found on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel and as part of the headlines we can review. All right, with that, let's get innovative. First, let's have today's guests introduce themselves and explain how their work is related to the Frankel Innovation Initiative. Sure, I'm Brad Martin, and I am the director of Fast Forward Medical Innovation, which is a group within the Office of Research here at the medical school. And our office is also um, the administrative home for the Frankel Initiative. And I'm Molly Stout. I'm one of the maternal fetal medicine physicians here at Michigan Medicine, and I'm one of the lucky recipients of the Frankel Innovation Award. Excellent. So what exactly is the Frankel Innovation Initiative and what is its goal, you know, and how does it differ from typical NIH grants that may be out there? Sure. Uh, the Frankel Innovation Initiative is a program that was made possible by a very generous gift um, to the medical school from the Stuart and Maxine Frankel Foundation. And their goal, simply put, is to uh, help our very innovative faculty here at Michigan get their technologies to the point where they can actually impact patient care. They want to free them up from the burden of the constant cycle of NIH grants. They want to provide them with mentorship on what it means to commercialize the technology and really give them all the resources they could possibly need to ensure that these technologies get to the point of patient care. That's where their goal is to improve lives and save lives. Awesome. Well, so to date, how many projects have been funded by the initiative? And maybe you can provide a brief overview of those projects. Sure. So we are in the third year of the program. Um, in the first year, we funded four projects. Um, last year, we funded an additional two projects, and the RFP for year three is currently open right now. Um, the way the program is set up is that uh, you're able to receive up to $500,000 in funding per year, and as long as you continue to make progress and hit your milestones, you can receive up to three years of funding typically. Um, so it's a fairly significant award, and uh, again, it is different from the NIH grants in that it does um, really sort of free you up from that constant cycle of having to obtain grants. And it has a goal of really commercializing technologies and impacting patient care. So what kind of projects are accepted and who actually makes that decision? Right. So the projects that we're looking for fall into basically three main categories. Uh, new drugs that are being developed, therapeutics, medical devices and diagnostics, or healthcare IT projects. And in terms of stage of development, um, we're really not looking to fund very early stage basic science questions, but rather uh, those that are fairly readily translatable and may be able to impact patient care within the next three to five years, shortly after the ending of the Frankel Initiative funding. Um, in terms of who selects these awards, uh, thankfully it's not me by myself, but rather we have a, a very esteemed group of scientists and venture capitalists, um, drug developers and medical device uh, developers who make up our scientific oversight committee. These nine individuals um, are not part of the university, whether they are um, from the outside community in the private sector and have great experience in developing uh, funding technologies. Um, so they're very well adept to be able to say, this particular technology has value right now or would have value if it did X, Y, and Z. So these are the people that are selecting these projects. We're very lucky to have them. They volunteer their time and I really just wanna see these technologies impact patient care. 
So if I may quickly go back to, you know, you said a lot of times it's sort of later stage projects, right? Where does that mean basically that the basic science part has already been figured out and now it's sort of trying to figure out how that will sort of translate to the bedside? That's exactly right. And so many times we want to have the basic science figured out, some preliminary data, and there's an awful lot of work that has to go in to the process of figuring out how to take this basic science finding, if you will, this data, and turn it into something that's really be uh, ready for patient care. Sometimes you need to build this into a final prototype of, de of a device. Sometimes you need to do some toxicology studies to really assess the right dosages of a new drug for patients. So those are the kinds of activities that you normally would not be able to get NIH funding for. You're really leaving research and development, you're becoming product development. And that's kind of where we want to step in. Awesome. Well, so you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but what is the makeup of the Scientific Advisory Committee and how do they select and guide projects? Yeah, as I said, so many of the uh, Oversight Committee members, um, they're all from the outside community, outside the University of Michigan. Many fall into the category of being venture capitalists. And that group is especially valuable because they have seen an awful lot of technologies and they understand what it takes to move something from a academic research project to the point of being a company or a product. Um, we also have C-level executives from um, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, as well as some foundations. And so, again, I think they're really well suited to be able to assess the strength of a technology uh, and some of the pitfalls that they may encounter that perhaps our academic research may not be aware of. And so during the process of uh, the Frankel funding, it's really so much more than just the funding itself. In fact, the funding is really almost secondary to the mentorship that they receive from both our team as well as the oversight committee members individually. So we have so many incredible researchers here, obviously at Michigan Medicine who are doing um, such impactful work. How would those researchers know if their projects would be considered for funding? Sure, I mean, the easiest way is to simply give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to you about your proposal and what you think you may be willing to do or like to do with the funding. Um, we would lay out some very discrete milestones that would very, be very much impactful in moving the technology forward. Um, again, we are looking not so much for basic science kinds of questions, but later stage technologies. So if you could see how, in a very clear way, how your technology could impact patient care, um, it's certainly in the realm of possibility for funding in the Franklin Initiative. I do suggest you to contact me. So what impact has the Frankel Innovation Initiative made on currently funded projects? Uh, I, looked, I would look to ask Molly that same question to see how she's been impacted either by the project. But I can certainly say that uh, with our currently funded projects, we have a couple of clinical trials going on right now. Um, one of them has had a very dramatic impact on the life of a child at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, who was in a very bad condition uh, of septic shock and uh, under compassionate use, one of the technologies was able to be applied and quite literally saved this child's life. So that's rewarding for the, uh, the members of us that are involved in the Frankel project. Um, I think that in other projects, simply the mentorship, the guidance, as well as the funding has allowed them the freedom to do some of the work that they might not thought they would be able to accomplish. Um, and again, move these projects to the point of uh, commercialization and clinical care. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Molly because she has had a project funded by the initiative. So Molly, let's turn to you. Can you tell us about your project and the potential clinical impact that it, it may have? Absolutely. So um, our project has to do with prediction and eventually prevention of preterm birth. 
So preterm birth just means that babies are born too early and too immature compared to where they should be born. And unfortunately, we have very little ability to understand birth timing in general. So even at term, at the end of pregnancy, if I see a patient in clinic today, I can't tell you or her with any certainty whether she's going to go into labor later today or tomorrow or not for a week or two or more. So not only can we not predict birth timing at normal at term, but we can't predict it when it's preterm. So I can't say whether a baby is going to be born at 34 weeks or even 24 weeks and really have to fight to survive. So with, with that and the kind of um, complex host of reasons that preterm birth is rising in the United States, we need better ability to predict and prevent preterm birth from happening. And our device uses ultrasound, which is safe and extremely commonly used during pregnancy. And it numerically quantifies what is happening with the cervix over pregnancy to go from closed during pregnancy to open when birth occurs. And so if we can detect those normal changes of the cervix to go from closed to open, and then also detect signals that that's happening too early, then we'll be able to predict more um, accurately who's going to deliver early. So what would that allow us to do? So why is it even important that we could say a woman is going to deliver within the next week. Well, there's a lot of things that we would change about the clinical care. So there are things that we would do to optimize how a baby can survive after a preterm birth. There are potentially things that we could do to prevent the preterm birth. We could even do things um, that have to do with efficiency of healthcare utilization, like who needs to be admitted to the hospital and who doesn't, who lives three or four hours from their nearest hospital and needs their family needs to relocate to be closer to a hospital that can take care of an early baby and who can stay safely at home. So it, it impacts a lot of decision-making around the time of birth, if we could predict this more accurately. How has the funding helped your research progress this far, Molly? Yeah, I have to say the Frankel Innovation Initiative funding has been really game-changing in my career here at the University of Michigan. Um, preterm birth has been the focus of decades and millions and millions of dollars of um, funding with actually very little progress in terms of accurate prediction and prevention. And when that happens, when decades of, of really truly excellent scientists and physicians have spent time on this and we've failed to make progress, it really suggests that we need to think about things differently and approach things differently, go back to the drawing board, really question, do we understand what we think we understand? Those sorts of questions are risky for, for funders like the NIH and, and other kind of traditional scientific funding mechanisms. But these novel ideas that sort of go back to the drawing board or question long held assumptions about things are, are, are risky for funders, but are kind of where the progress happens. Um, so we assembled a team of people. The, the, the project I'm talking about is not just me. I'm the physician and I take care of patients every day who have one or sometimes many preterm births. But the team we have assembled is myself, other obstetricians, imaging experts, engineers, device specialists. And it's that team that can kind of bring completely different experiences and sets of expertise to this question 
that allows us to kind of think about this age old problem in a totally new way. And so this, this funding is, um, has allowed us to enroll hundreds of patients across three different universities, do thousands of imaging visits, and to really answer the scientific question, but isn't, is sort of like a high risk, potentially high reward project that only an initiative like this would be able to fund. Once we have the data, which we'll have at the end of this project to say, hey, this device really works, the funding gets easier, then all of the traditional funding mechanisms could be brought in and, and, and clinical care can be changed. But it takes a committee of people who want to take a chance on a new idea and a good idea um, to be able to move science forward that has not been able to move forward to date. Molly mentioned the fact that her trial is occurring at three different institutions. And that is really something that this funding has allowed to happen. Um, okay. Being at three different institutions, a multi-site trial, is what it's called, uh, really allows you to get this data much more quickly. And that's really one of the goals of the program, again, is to eliminate competition between researchers across the country and encourage collaboration. And this is a good example of that collaboration that the, the fund has been able to achieve. Yeah, just as an example of that, as Brad mentions, it's three universities, but in one year of funding, it was equivalent to sort of what would have taken me three, four, maybe more years from an NIH perspective. Um, so the pace of this funding is very fast, um, which allows the progress, you kind of get to your answer quickly. So we've been able to get to our answer rather quickly in the first year of funding, um, scope our second year of funding questions around the findings from the first year and really kind of know the direction that is going to be the highest yield to turn to in terms of how we're going to take this to, to clinical care. I, I think that's great. And um, outside of just the funding itself, have you gotten also support from the scientific advisory committee? And if so, how, how has that been helpful to you? Yeah, so that's a great point. And as Brad mentioned, the mentorship and um, sort of outside the box thinking has been a, just an amazing learning experience for me. So the science and the um, medicine certainly is what comes more naturally to me. And that's where I, I spend the majority of my time. But the reality is to go from science to integrating this into patient care and bringing a technology into doctor's offices and hospitals requires a whole set of other experiences that the scientific advisory board can, can shepherd us along with. So I would say that the scientific advisory committee brings the sort of business, technology development, regulatory aspects to sort of complement the scientific expertise to bring the whole, um, set of check boxes that has to be that has to be accounted for before a technology can be brought kind of more widespread into patient clinical care. So finally, if people are interested in submitting a project, how can they go about doing so? Yeah, again, the RFP for the year three of the Franco program is open right now. Um, the first step is, is, is to submit a fairly simple, short, two-page letter of intent, and those are due May 9th. Uh, I believe that at the bottom of this um, video, you're going to have a link to the competition space site where they can apply. And if they have problems finding that, uh, they can certainly call me directly, Brad Martin at Fast Forward Medical Innovation, and I'd be happy to guide you through the process. But it is fairly straightforward. Outstanding. Yeah, we're not okay. trying to make this. We're not trying to make this very difficult or onerous on the researchers. Oh, absolutely. They're doing enough hard work, right? That's right. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brad and Molly, for sharing your story and for sharing information about this initiative. If you want to learn more about the Frankel Innovation Initiative, go to mmheadlines.org. That's mmheadlines.org. And while you're there, check out other featured stories from this past week, including the kickoff of Quality Month poster submissions and an inside look at the team behind ECMO, which is helping save lives, especially during the ongoing pandemic. Find those stories and more at mmheadlines.org. All right, Hunter. So one of my favorite things to do when I prepare for these podcasts is check out all the crazy like national days. Like I know it was National Pet Day a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Um, This week, there was also National Scrabble Day, and I love Scrabble. So that got me thinking, are you really into board games? And if so, what are what are among your favorites? Sure. Yeah, I like Scrabble. I'm not good at it, but I enjoy the (laughs) game. Um, I really I think my favorite games are like Uno or like those quick games you can get into. It's not going to take like an hour or two. Um, you know, on that note, probably my least favorite is Monopoly for that reason. Oh, it's awful. It always ends in fights, <laughs> tears. So, but no, I like, you know, just, just the simple games. What about you? Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I like Uno too. I think that's great. There's now an Uno flip, which is really fun too. I don't know if you oh, played that, no. but, um, and sorry, I think sorry, you know, it's like, it's a kid's game. I think mm-hmm. I like games where you can like take out your aggression on somebody, <laughs> you know, and you can like, who am I going <laughs> to, who am funny. I going to knock off the board right now and send back to home right. um, playing sorry. But I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a bad person. Cause I also like cards against humanity. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a board game, but maybe board games show who I truly am. And that <laughs> might not be a good thing. Hey, but at the end, it, it's all fun. It's all, it's it's all, all fun. fun in games. Exactly. That's what they say. All <laughs> right. It's time for the weekly trivia contest. And last week we asked listeners, what are the name of the two blogs that share insight and tips from Michigan medicine experts? The answer is the Michigan health and Michigan health lab blogs. Congratulations to Amy Van Brussel, who sent in the correct answer. Now for this week's question, here's Dan. All right. This week's question is, what does the acronym ECMO stand for? Once again, what does the acronym ECMO stand for? You can find the answer in this week's headline story. And once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for the chance to win a prize. Daniel, I can't help but notice how uh, timely that question is, because uh, it's interesting that the the, the founder of ECMO, the, the inventor of ECMO, is actually uh, one of our current Frankel awardees, uh, Dr. Bob Bartlett. That's amazing. But I won't tell you what ECMO stands for. That's yeah, please, that you don't, don't ruin the answer. But that just shows you, if you apply your projects now, you might be a future trivia question on the wrap. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to our guests for taking the time to join us today. And thanks, as always, to our listeners and viewers for everything you do for patients, families, and each other. We'll see you next week.